You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about economics, featuring our guest Gary Hoover, Professor of Economics and Executive Director of the Murphy Institute at Tulane University. Dr. Hoover's research focuses on economics, race, and public policy. Since 2012, he's been co-chair of the Committee on the Status of Minority Groups in the Economics Profession, in the most important organization in the field, the American Economic Association. He is also the founding editor of the Journal of Economics, Race, and Policy. Welcome, Dr. Hoover. So let's start by talking about the field of economics, just as it emerges uh, as a field, its own origin stories and the history of the field that we now refer to as economics is confusing to a lot of people, or at least ambiguous. When do you start to see a field of economics kind of emerging? Well, when you think about it, economics, people naturally assume that what you're talking about is money. They say, oh, so I see that you're a money person. But that's incorrect. Economics actually deals with scarcity. And what you're concerned about is you've got people with unlimited wants, but they've got limited resources. And so then we've got to make some decisions. We've got to make some decisions about allocation of resources, given that people have these unlimited wants. But we have limited resources. We apply economics to a range of areas, one of them being financial economics, as we call it. But there are also topics like environmental economics, health economics, tax economics. You will find that anywhere that there is scarcity, meaning that we just don't have enough to go around and we have to make decisions, that's where economics plays a role. And that's how it started going all the way back to thinking about farmers having to make decisions about where and when they were going to use their limited resources, what they were doing was what we now call agricultural economics. So it's been around forever when people are making choices about their time. They're making allocative choices about the time that they have available to them and the things they want to do. They probably don't know it, but they're using economics even then. So when people say in conversation that that someone is being economical or economic in their sense of frugality or something, that is related in the sense then to the field of economics? Or Absolutely. Because what you're doing is you're trying to say, what's the best use of the limited time that I have or the limited resources that I have? Given that I have to make these choices, I need to be as efficient as possible. So, for instance, you know, one of the examples I've used in class is I need to heat my house. And what I could do is burn violins. And that would indeed heat my house. Is that the most efficient use of wood and resources? No, it's not. I do much better using some firewood. But it's a choice I could make. And so, economics deals with what is the most efficient choice necessary to achieve the goal. So as a professor of economics in the Department of Economics, how important to you or to other economists is the history of the field as itself? I mean, you look back, like, I mean, all the way even back to Adam Smith 
you know, an 18th century wealth of nations is sometimes referred to as a founding or early text in that field. Does that matter to economics today, its own history as a discipline? It should. Unfortunately for us, it doesn't as much as it did at one point as we've become more mathematical in our field. We've lost some of the underpinnings. But for those of us who care, we get a much better understanding of what we're doing now and why we're doing what we're doing now when we think more about our beginnings. We have to remember, and this is what Adam Smith was trying to drive home, was that, look, we're talking about people here. And every time we're talking about economics, what you're talking about is human decision-making. And we should not lose sight of the fact that when we're talking about this nation, or we're talking about the resources, we're talking about the people in that nation and the resources available to those people. And so when we get to where we're just running computer models and we lose sight of the fact that every time that blip happens on the screen, that's impacting hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of people, we've lost something as a discipline. After all, we are a social science. Yeah, actually, that was one of my questions for you. Sure. Why do we consider economics a social science? When I look at departments of economics, sometimes I see them grouped in the social sciences, as we do here at Tulane. Sometimes I see it in a business school. I know there's a relationship between math and economics. So economics as a social science, how does that emerge? It came from our beginnings, right? As you were just talking about before, what we're concerned about is human behavior. And how do humans respond to limited resources but unlimited wants? That's the allocative decision that we were concerned with. We were concerned about the bettering of humankind and how could we use economics to do that. Once we lost that and we just started thinking about running our models to make them work, we lost something, right? We wanted to know initially, hmm, why is it? That people, society, why is it that when the prices of goods went up, people start buying less of that good? That was our beginnings when we came up with the law of demand that said that when the prices of a good went up, the demand for it by who? By consumers, by people, went down. A conversation we've been having in this series is that a number of the disciplines in the liberal arts that we think of as very solid and permanent or long-lasting or that students may think of as eternal, in fact, emerge in the 18th, 19th century and sort of get codified at those moments, which, of course, it turns out, or we know, is also a moment during which you know, colonialism is very rampant in the world and the subjugation of peoples in other parts of the globe is at least simultaneous, if not connected. What's your sense of, you know, of that layered kind of history as economics starts to become developed as a discipline? You know, our problem is that in graduate economics, at least, when I was still a student, I took the economic history courses. And that's becoming less and less common that people take economic history courses. In fact, I took economic history from a Nobel Prize winner, Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize for economics, for his work around economic history, where he said 
institutions matter. The institutions that frame our economic thinking matter. So the topics that you brought up about colonialism and the other things helped to frame how economics was thought of. He didn't put it in those terms, but if you broadened it and you took it one step further, that's what he meant when he was saying these things. And what he then would say is that economics is versatile enough to expand and grow as we increased our understanding of what institutions meant, what institutions did to societies and to certain groups of peoples. So in excavating the kind of social aspects of economics as a social science, I'm doing it kind of purposely because for a lot of students, at least, or people who come to the field as novices, there's a, an abstractness to the field, or there seems to be an abstractness to the field, where it seems as if it's non-human and kind of uh, mathematical and so on. You've said that from the way that economics is often taught to students in the United States, whether by textbooks or in introductory courses, is problematic from the very start in the way that it frames race and the human. Could you expand a little bit about that or explain? Right. Well, let's take a step back. Part of the problem was that in the study of human behavior, economists needed to start building models. And to build models, we needed simplifying assumptions. The same way, if you think about making a model airplane, right, you can't just take an enormous airplane and then just shrink it down. You have to make some simplifying assumptions to make this thing work. And that's what we did because we wanted our models to work. The problem was that we modeled out some real aspects of human behavior, such as racism and discrimination. And what we said was one of the things that we are going to use in economics as a guiding principle is that individuals will always want to maximize their own utility. In other words, utility being another term for happiness or joy. Firms will have one goal in mind. Firms will only want to maximize profits. That's our assumptions. Individuals want to maximize their utility or happiness. Firms want to maximize their profits. Therefore, racism, discrimination, all of these things that create what we call frictions will not exist. Why? Because they will interfere with profits and utility maximization. We were dead in the water from that point on when we assumed something that was quite obvious and was there to be seen. And instead of embracing it, we said, well, it can't be there, right? It goes against our fundamental guiding principles. We were dead in the water from that point on. And only now are economists starting to come to grips with the fact that, you know, those guiding principles that we started with, that an individual will put profit above their own, you know, race-based preferences. We were never right on that. And when is that moment happening? And is that a moment of codification of the discipline? You know, the move from the 18th century, kind of Adam Smith model? Actually, it started with the math, right? So if you read Adam Smith, there's no math in it. He actually was part philosopher, right? He was a philosopher and an economist. It wasn't until the middle of the 20th century, when we started really using mathematics 
And that's when we started to need to make the model solvable. And once we needed to make the model solvable, we started coming up with some of these assumptions. These assumptions made our math work out better and they were pretty, but they didn't necessarily reflect. And that's what I think, with, going back to your question, I think that's what students are picking up on. Yes, these are pretty models, but they seem to be rather abstract. They don't seem to capture what I'm seeing. And that's how we lost a generation of students of color. When a student of color comes up to a faculty member and says, you know, I want to study discrimination in the housing market. And the faculty member says, oh, that's already been done. We've already modeled that out. And then they're going to just go to another discipline, such as sociology or political science, where they embrace these differences still. And that's what happened. So we lost two, at least a generation, if not two. Now, so this is totally fascinating, right? So what we're saying then, we go from a late 18th century, you know, political economy model that's more philosophical, whether it's the Smith tradition or the French contemporaries of his, into a period in the United States before the Civil War, antebellum period, when economics starts to emerge kind of within the liberal arts, but not very systematic, right? Right. And you would think of it more along the lines of economics and moral philosophy or something along that lines. And then it broke out and became its own distinct discipline. Now, so if the very attempt to be more mathematical or more systematic is emerging, what's, what's the period of time we're talking about? Mid-century. So as economic textbooks start to be written and produced for the college classroom of the post-World War II university, right? Of course, when expansion of the social sciences for a number of reasons, expansion of the educational range of students in the United States after the GI Bill, for example. Textbook publishing of economics is a big thing. I remember lugging my economics textbooks around in college and it being very kind of bold and probably a picture of a globe on it for macro, I forget. You know, how does that process then continue into the textbooks themselves? It's a pretty interesting thing that's going on because at the same time that mathematics is infiltrating economics, the computing power is increasing enormously after World War II. And so those two created a perfect storm to where now we could go back and look at historical data of things like GDP. And then we could use mathematics and statistics to start drawing correlations and to start drawing covariances and saying, hey, you know what? Let's look at what happens to the economy. And we're able to start testing some of those theories, which up until that point, you know, if you think about it, had been more theories of what would happen. We were able to start using empirical techniques and they got better because we had the mathematical sophistication and now we had the computing power to do it. We, we lost our way, in my opinion. So that's really interesting. So when you talk about how to go back and to undo some of those errors in the abstraction of the human, as you're saying, in terms of the division between utility and economic profit, let's say, is there something from that 18th or earlier 19th century model of economics that we could be bringing back as part of the well, part of the problem goes back to the profession itself in that our profession was highly exclusionary at the point. And so when we talked about human behavior, we weren't talking about 
the gambit of human behavior, which included people of color. It didn't even include women. So we came up with these models that just said, here's what man will do when faced with this. So we started out rather primitively and we did not expand, right? We did not see, it took us a long time to see the value of working from home. Because then we used to have these models and I would read these models to where it would say, you know, women add nothing to the household, even though they were the ones who stayed at home, raised children, and brought to the household an entire half of household production, which we totally eliminated and we erased. And it's only been in the last 40 years that we've recognized, and now we've got actually whole areas called economics of the household, where we're studying it. And now we have to go back and revisit all of the things that were said before because they were all wrong. Right. So in this kind of post-World War II... No, no, this came much later. So even after World yeah. War II, we still discounted women and people right. of color. So in that moment after World War II, when economics starts to codify itself more, make this mathematical turn, is it the conditions of the racism and the kind of sexism of the post-war 1940s and 1950s that get embedded into this move? Absolutely. And it cost us. Yeah. It cost us dearly. When we had a chance right then, you know, was that 70 years or more ago now, we had a chance back then to really hit our stride as a discipline. The discipline lost its chance. All right, so take me then from that moment in the 40s and 50s through the civil rights era and the turn, right? Then these abstract terms such as the market, you know, kind of come in and, you know, this wonderful work that I've read in intellectual and cultural history that talks about the abstraction of the term the market as it emerges really in the 70s and 80s as one of these fractured terms, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point in that and I'm going to take you someplace that you didn't ask about, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back. Between the period 1920 and 1970, there was only about 45 black economists that existed on the planet Earth. In 1968, the American Economics Association will not recognize a group of black economists who wanted to have a committee within the American Economics Association. So they met in the hotel room and they founded their own committee. They called themselves the Caucus of Black Economists. The reason I bring that up is they wanted to ask the very questions that are being asked today. So I think that in some small way, this group of five black economists pushed the bigger American Economics Association to start thinking more inclusively. At that same time, not Long after the American Economics Association acknowledges and creates something called the Committee of the Study of Women in the Economics Profession. Those two together, as you had more people of color entering the profession right around the 70s, and you had women taking a more prominent role in the profession, isn't it interesting then that we start getting a more broader view? which wasn't what you really asked, but I don't think it's any accident that those events tie together. It gets right to the heart of the matter and something that we're exploring in 
really all of these episodes in this podcast is the relationship between the people who are in studying, teaching a discipline and its relationship to the history of the discipline and the rules that have been formed. So this is one of the most tangible examples of how that intersection plays out. Take us forward with those two groups and what they do back to the study. When do you see the effect on quote unquote mainstream teaching of economics and where you would look for it? It was slow. It was slow. It took about, even if you look in the 70s, it took another three or four decades as we really start to see the impact. And first it started with women, actually, before it really took off with people of color. It started with women and women said, hey, you know, your models of the household are incomplete. When we're talking about labor economics and going back to your point, we always said, well, labor happens in the market, the labor market. There's a market for labor where firms demand people to work. Women said, no, you're missing out on a vital component here when you're thinking about the labor force participation or the lack thereof of women because they're in the household providing a valuable service, right? What if you had to go out and pay someone to take care of your children? to do the things that are happening. So they're pushing hard on this. In the mid-70s, the first black man, Sir Arthur Lewis, wins the Nobel Prize in economics. Watershed moment. There was no denying his work was just fabulous. And what was his work focusing on? Actually, he was doing stuff around monetary economics. He wasn't doing work necessarily that had anything to do with race or gender, but he was so prominent that he couldn't be ignored, even given the nature of his work. He was just that good. And that took us off to the races and to where we are today, to where it's much more acknowledged. So let me ask you an economics question about economics. What are the costs of racism to economics that we're talking about, these structural examples that you're talking well, the main problem has been that our numbers continue to be low when it comes to diversity. When you tell a student who believes that racism, discrimination exists, that they don't exist in these models, they don't exist in this class, then the student heads back out of the door and heads to other disciplines that open them up. That's been our problem. Even going back to my days as a graduate student, I was told, look, what you want to do is, quote unquote, real economics, get your degree, and then once you've established yourself, you can go off and do some of these tangential things on race and gender, where I would say, no, this is the type of work I want to do, and I stuck with it. And I, today, a student is much more likely to be told, sure, that's fine. Right. I will find a way to help you do this type of work. You wrote a really important and influential article with Amanda Bayer and Amanya Washington that came out in 2020 in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. That's got a great title. It says a lot how you can work to increase the presence and improve the experience of Black, Latinx, and Native American people in the economics profession. And could you talk to us about how we can work to increase the presence and improve that experience of minorities in? the discipline, you know, economics in academia in particular. 
Well, one of the things we need to do is to begin to listen, not only to what people of color say are their interests, but also their lived experiences. That just doesn't happen to where in class, someone would be able to say, look, my lived experience is that this has happened to me, so I know that this is real, despite the fact that the professor might say, well, you know, that's not in any model I've ever seen, or that is a tangent and one-off. That's not pure economics. When you don't listen to people, they're going to go to where they can be listened to. Another thing we encourage people to do in that article is to open up their networks. What we find in economics is that I don't get invited to conferences because I don't know anybody. I don't get invited to seminars, but you do. So use your network to enhance the opportunities for me. Those types of things matter to economists of color that we don't have. For instance, in graduate school, what we found is that students farther up on the chain, or fifth-year students, fourth, fifth-year students, leave notes for their peers who come after them. So a fifth-year student will say, here's all of my exams, here are all my notes, here's everything I had from when I was a first-year student, right? Who do I give those to? I give those to students I know or in my network. When I was a graduate student, I didn't have anybody. I didn't know anybody who had even gone to graduate school. And so I had to rough it all out on my own when my peers were getting help that they didn't even think, well, um, this would be helpful for that person over there too. Those types of things matter. I was never included in study groups. In fact, I'd been there for almost a year before I knew that there were study groups. Those types of differences matter. So following the two paths of racism or racialized kind of behaviors in the discipline, one is the sort of structures that have emerged in terms of the codification of the field, and the other, these kind of practices that result from or continue to keep the presence of minority graduate students in the field, right? Let me ask you this then, and following the title of our episode, Anti-Racism and Economics, to you, what does anti-racism mean in economics, what would anti-racist work look like in the field? It's quite simple, right? All we'd have to do in economics is, surprise, surprise, is actually use economics. We have an answer. And what we know in economics is incentives matter. So therefore, if I incentivize people to engage in human behavior, which is the thing we started out by talking about, people respond to incentives. Therefore, if I go to an economics department and I say, look, your diversity efforts look pretty poor, so therefore I'm going to take resources away from you until you can show and demonstrate that your diversity efforts matter, immediately economists respond to incentives and they find that, hmm, I need my resources to do my work, so therefore I will engage in these activities. We teach that every day to our students, and yet in economics, when we say, hmm, it's time for us to think about diversity, the first thing we do is we say, well, I haven't a clue in the world. When you just taught a bunch of freshmen that incentives matter. Also, one of the things I've been stressing, I've always stressed, was that 
in the academic model, what do we evaluate our people on right now? Teaching, research, and service, right? Or you might call a research scholarship. If we cared about teaching, we say, here's what we want to see out of your teaching portfolio. If you don't attain certain standards, then you're not going to be a teacher here at this academic institution. The same thing with scholarship. In our discipline, you have to have so many publications peer-reviewed, and they have to be of certain quality. You want to hang around here, that has to be the case. However, we don't have that for diversity. That should be the fourth pillar. To me, it should be teaching, research, service, and diversity. You put that in as a fourth pillar and say to people, from now on, you want to hang around this academic institution, you introduce that fourth pillar and say that here are the metrics that I'm looking to have met for you to achieve tenure here. Surprise, surprise, people respond to incentives. And as such, they will use the economic model to say, well, if this is what is necessary for me to hang around this academic institution, then I'm going to do it. That's exactly what we do for the other three. And we do for the other three because we say that those matter to us. We say that teaching matters. Of course, we're an academic institution. We're here to service young minds. We know that peer review informs our teaching. So there should be some amount of scholarship and service is just necessary for the department, for the academic institution. But we don't have that for anything approaching diversity, especially not in economics departments. What, if any, have been the ramifications of the 2020 protests that emerged in the wake of George Floyd's murder in the discipline of economics? Have you seen tangible discussions or measurable differences since those protests? I have. One of the things is, because I am the co-chair of the Committee on the Status of Minority Groups in the Economics Profession, I've had textbook companies reach out to me and say, you know, look, What we want to do is we want to be more inclusive in our textbooks, but we don't know how. So what do you think about this idea? And what do you think about that idea? And some ideas I would say, okay, that's horrid. Don't ever do that. Don't ever say that again. And that idea is a great idea. For instance, inside of textbooks, they'll run these small profiles. And they'll profile a prominent economist, someone like an Adam Smith or even a Paul Samuelson. One of the things they said was, can you give us a list of people of color economists? Because we actually don't know where to go. And I was able to give them the resources so that now textbooks actually say, hey, you know, young undergraduate student of color, here's someone who looks exactly like you. Here's their profile in the profession and how they got to where they are. That was a great step. That came out of those protests. So steps like that have happened. Another thing we were able to do was, I talked about networks. Departments would come to me and say, you know, we have never invited for an academic seminar a person of color because we don't know any. What we put together was a database, and we said, hey, you're looking to invite a person of color to give an academic seminar? Go to this database. Here are over 600 who 
have signed up voluntarily and want to be invited to an academic seminar. We found that it's expanded even beyond that because everyone's using that database now. National funding and granting agencies who want to have evaluations of projects have said, let's go to that database. Let's get someone of color to take a look at this proposal for funding. Because as I just said before, we just totally excluded them and said, how will this impact the white male? And maybe we can get a different perspective that we're missing. So those types of things would have been unheard of 10 years ago, and they're taking place today. This is great. I think it's great. I want to thank you for this really inspiring and important conversation and taking the time to talk to us about anti-racism and economics. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green. And special thanks to Professor Billy Sass.